United we stand, divided we fall. That's what colonial leader John Dickinson said as the early American colonies began to consider whether or not they should break away from the motherland of Great Britain. His whole point was, if we all decide to do it, if we're all united in principle and in values and in goals in this regard, we need to do it. But if we're not, it's not going to work and it's going to be chaos. United we stand, divided we fall. Some years later, as the revolution was actually becoming a reality, Ben Franklin kind of rephrased Dickinson's words, and he in his pithy way said it this way, gentlemen, either we all hang together or we'll all hang individually. And today we see the very sad truth of those statements being lived out in the nation of Iraq. Even though Iraq has been liberated from a, a deadly dictator, in fact, who was convicted and sentenced to death even this morning, our time anyways, Iraq has never been experiencing more disunity, more chaos and confusion than it is right now. And the reality is, in the nation of Iraq, there is national disunity. There are Kurds and Sunnis and Shiites, all factions within the same country, who all think they know what's best for the country, who have their own set of values and goals and beliefs and priorities. And rather than working together, each one of them wants to exercise primary power. And as a result... There is rampant disunity and no amount of American troops or money or anything else can overcome the destructive power of disunity among a people. It can only come from within sharing values and beliefs and being committed to similar principles. Unfortunately, we're kind of seeing similar things in the United States today in the sense that I think most people would agree that America has never been more starkly divided than it is right now. In the sense that there used to be a huge bubble in the middle of America that, that all shared the same values and the same basic worldview and that kind of thing. But today what you're seeing is extremes on both sides and there's no middle left because we're bickering and disagreeing about all kinds of different issues and that kind of thing. And both of the groups firmly believe that they're right. And so as a result, we've kind of lost that shared sense of value and priority and goal in America. And I think John Dickinson's words have never been more true, either for Iraq or for us. And that is united we stand, but divided we will fall just like every nation who has fallen before us. Now, that truth is not just for nations and countries. It's also true of churches, because as churches, we are called to be united around a central belief system. We are called to be united by the things we share in common in Jesus Christ and united by those things. We will stand, but divided on those kinds of issues by other less important issues. We will certainly fall. You see, just as in Iraq, in many churches, there are kind of spiritual factions and spiritual insurgencies taking place all of the time. Whether it's a group of people who have their views on worship and their views on how things should be run in the church and they huddle together and they think they are definitely right and they're unwilling to compromise their values. 
And then there are people on the other side, maybe their leaders or pastoral staff or whoever else that feels like, no, we know the vision for the church. We know what's right. And so we're going to go our way and there's no compromise there. And as a result, churches end up divided into many little factions, all of whom believe that they're right. The other people are wrong. We're not going to compromise. And as a result, many churches have been split right down the middle. And actually some cease to exist, all because of disunity among the body of Jesus Christ. People who refuse to unite around the vastly common body of beliefs and values and priorities that we have as the church of Jesus Christ. You see, I'm convinced that God has great plans for Wyzetta Evangelical Free Church in this community. I mean, there are tens of thousands of people within a 20-minute drive that desperately need to hear the good news that we have to share. They desperately need the care and the, the ministry and the mercy that we are called to live out in the name of Christ. But I'm equally convinced that nothing will prevent us from doing what God has called us to do, like disunity in the body. See, what you need to realize is whenever there's unresolved conflict in the body of Jesus Christ, just as with a family, just as with a nation, whenever there is unresolved conflict, unresolved disagreements, they begin to fester like an untreated sore. It's almost like there's a cancer cell and it begins to grow and spread throughout the body. Unless it's treated or excised out of the body, it will always lead to chaos and confusion and disunity that will prevent the church from doing what God has called it to do. And so this morning, as we continue in our study of Ephesians, I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to be looking this morning at verses 1 through 6. Because in these verses now, Paul turns his attention to the behavior of the body of Christ. Remember now, in chapters 1 through 3, he's been just driving home the various realities and truths about who we are as the body of Christ. He's been talking about our position that each of us are holy and blameless in Christ, despite our fallen nature and despite our sin, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us and our faith in that work. He's described that we're now children of the living God, adopted in his family. We've been chosen, redeemed, sealed by the spirit of God, which is our guarantee of the hope that God has given us. And now Paul is switching gears and he's saying, because of who you are and that is all because of all that is true of you spiritually, this is now how you need to live as the church and believers. You need to make sure you're living consistently in your daily life with who you already are spiritually in Christ. So I want you to follow along or read on the screens as I read uh, Ephesians chapter four, verses one through six. This is what Paul says now as he begins talking about our behavior as the body of Christ. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. 
Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. I think point I think Paul wants to drive home a point here about oneness, unity. And it's interesting as he switches gears from talking about the spiritual reality of who we are in Christ and switches over into behavior. The very first subject he deals with is what? Unity. Unity. I think Paul knew a little about group life together. He was a realist. And so the very first thing he tells the Ephesians is he says, you need to make sure that you are living in unity. And in these verses, Paul really gives two instructions, two instructions to the Ephesians that apply to us as well as the body of Christ in this day and age. And those two instructions uh, are for creating unity in the body so that we can do the things that God has called us to do. And the first instruction that Paul shares here uh, has to do with how we promote unity. Paul wanted the Ephesians to understand how they were to go about promoting unity. You see, the reality is unity is not some mystical thing that happens to us. It's not like we come to Christ and all of a sudden there's some mystical wand or something fairy dust that's sprinkled on us. And all of a sudden we're united and we experience this genuine unity. That's not how it happens. Unity is created by the work of the Holy Spirit working in us and through us to create this sense of unity. It's something that we're responsible to participate in or with the Holy Spirit in as he creates that sense of oneness in Christ, that sense of unity out of many diverse parts, many different families, many religious backgrounds, many racial and ethnic backgrounds, all brought together under the umbrella of the realities of who we are in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says that that we need to make sure that we are uh, pursuing unity. Look what he says at the very end of verse three or the beginning of verse three. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep the unity. Now, how exactly are we supposed to do that? Practically speaking. I mean, if you were to leave today and just go out and start living your life, how exactly do you make every effort to preserve the unity of this local manifestation of the universal body of Christ? How do you go about doing that? Well, Paul says it's very practical and really it's quite simple if we'll listen and if we'll learn and if we'll do it. And here's what he says. Here's how we make every effort to pursue unity in the body. It's up at the top. He says, I urge you. To live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. That word worthy is the key to understanding really this passage. Because the word worthy uh, comes from a word that means to balance the arms of the scale. It's the whole idea of a scale that is off whack And it's being brought into perfect balance. And the picture Paul is painting here for the Ephesians and us is that in our Christian lives, in our life as a church, 
Oftentimes, our scales are out of balance in a set. Here's our reality, our spiritual rally in Christ, holy, blameless, children of God, redeemed, sealed, all of that kind of stuff, seated at the right hand of God, the Father in Christ. But then here is our practical behavior on this side of the scale. And what Paul is saying is live a life worthy of your calling in Christ. We're called to be holy and blameless children of God, all of those things. And so when he's saying live a life worthy of your calling, he's saying bring your life into balance, practically speaking, with who you already are in Jesus Christ. That's one of the primary ways we're going to promote the unity of this body. By living out the spiritual realities that are true of us already in Christ. And Paul shares three very specific ways that we can live a life worthy of our calling or bring our lives into biblical balance. And the first way that we can do that, he says, is that we need to be people of humility. We need to be people of humility, he says. Be completely humble. Now, that word humble there uh, means to... Esteem yourself less than someone else to consider yourself less important than someone else. That's what true humility is. That's why a Mother Teresa could serve people in garbage dumps and live in garbage dumps and not have to uh, have all kinds of, you know, uh, material blessings because she was truly humble. She considered herself less than other people and was willing to serve the least of the least and find joy and pleasure and purpose in doing that. Now, Paul is not here promoting uh, a worm theology. Woe is me. I'm worthless. He's not talking about developing low self-esteem that, that everyone else is better than me. That's not what humility is. That's not what it means to esteem yourself less than others. What he's talking about is having an accurate Self-image, not an unrealistic one on the I'm better than everyone else, not unrealistic on oh I'm just a worm. I'll never measure up. Everyone's better than me. What Paul is promoting here is an accurate self-image, which recognizes in humility. I'm not always right. Well, at least you're not always right. But I mean, that's what he's talking about. Recognizing I might get it wrong sometimes. I might not see every facet of the issue or the decision. There might be other people in the body that actually do have an ounce of wisdom on this issue or this matter. You see, that's genuine humility, recognizing who you really are accurately and recognizing that we need one another to be whole and to make good decisions and to to be the body that God has called us to be and to follow the plan and the programs and all the different things that oftentimes are a part of the body of Christ. We need to be people of genuine Christ-like humility. In fact, in Philippians chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, but listen to what Paul says again to the Philippian church. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ or being one with Christ, If any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, 
value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Whoa. Could you imagine a marriage where that was truly being lived out, where you didn't consider yourself more important, but you considered your spouse more important and their interests more important than your interests. And you were constantly fighting over. No, no, no. You, honey, you, you take this. Time. No, honey, you do. I mean, that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? If in the body of Christ, we were truly looking out for the interest of everyone else rather than protecting our interests and always having to be right and always getting our way and thinking that we're somehow the big wig instead of saying, no, you do it. Let's go your way this time. That is genuine humility. But there's a second way that Paul says we can balance these scales in our lives, and that is by being people of gentleness, not just humility, but people of gentleness. He goes on to say, be completely humble and gentle. The word that he uses for gentle here is the same word that's used in the third beatitude. When Jesus says, blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. Quite a statement, isn't it? Quite a a promise. Blessed are the gentle. The word is referring to people who are strong who have strong emotions and feelings and opinions, but who are able to keep those under control and not allow their emotions and their feelings and their opinions to run rampant and to run roughshod over everyone else. True gentleness. You've probably heard the analogy of a wild stallion or a stallion who is tamed and or one of those thoroughbred horses that that little tiny jockey has the bit in the mouth and you just see the muscles rippling and know that that horse could just take off like a rocket. But there's a sense of gentleness in spite of its incredible strength because it's under control, strength under control. You see, when you decide to, to be honest with someone And do it in kind of a harsh, mean-spirited way. You can't just say, well, I'm just being honest with them. You know, we sometimes need to realize, well, you know, we really weren't very gentle. It really wasn't the best way to maybe share that truth with them or to confront them on something. Uh, We need to recognize that gentleness is very important in the body of Christ. Recognizing that we can't just always lash out with our opinions and our emotions and just kind of fly off at, at everything that happens to us. We've got to live our lives under control so we can step back from the issue or whatever it is and reconsider, recalibrate, pray about, you know, Lord, how would you respond in this situation? And then we can move ahead and act With gentleness, humility, gentleness. And finally, Paul says, we can bring our lives into balance and promote unity by being people of patience, by being people of patience. Look what he says in the second half of verse two. He says, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. The word patience means to be long tempered. It's the idea of being confronted by the idiosyncrasies and habits and weirdnesses of other people and going a long time bearing up under that before you kind of lose your temper and say, "Okay, that's it. You know, it's the recognition that, yeah, you know, you've got your issues and problems and your faults and all of that kind of stuff. But we all work hard at being long tempered with another in the spirit of love, giving each other the benefit 
of the doubt. That's what patience is. Now, you can imagine for the body of Christ, if all of us were continually conscious and focusing on just those three things, being truly humble, being truly gentle in all of our dealings, being patient with one another and their idiosyncrasies and their weirdness and their habits and not letting them get to us, but realizing, you know, they're created unique in the likeness and image of God, just like I am. And recognizing, you know, I have my weirdnesses and idiosyncrasies, too. Now, you might not think that they're weird or idiosyncratic, but I guarantee you there are other people that do. And if we had a little get together where everyone could just share openly with you, here are some of your weirdnesses. I'm sure it would be a really fun, full time of sharing. And so you just need to recognize that. But what promotes disunity is pride, harshness and impatience. When we're proud and think that we've got the answer to everything and we're in control and everyone else kind of revolves around us. Uh, that creates disunity when we're harsh and, and aren't gentle. That creates disunity when we're impatient and quick to be irritated and lash out at others. That creates a sense of disunity. And so we need to work on those things. I mean, let's face it. When it comes to living together in the body of Christ, just like living together in a family, we've got to realize we are all just flat out weird. We have our own unique habits and ways of doing things, ways of talking that, believe it or not, probably get on the nerves of other people in the body. And the sooner we recognize that, the more easily we can be humble and gentle and patient, recognizing that that's how we want other people to treat us. I mean, I'm weird. I've got some weird little habits and things. One of my little weirdnesses is I will drink a can of Coke down to about the last you know, quarter inch and then I won't drink the rest. I don't know how this started. A glass of milk, a glass of juice. I'll drink it down to the last eighth in the glass and then I'm not going to drink anymore. And when I was a kid, uh, my dad would go around the house picking up cans of pop and he knew that I left the can because there was just that little eighth of an inch of Coke left in the bottom of the can. And, and it used to drive him crazy. It drives my wife crazy now. Just, what are you, I'm going to teach you how to drink this last eighth. She actually sat me down one time and said, here's a glass that you left. Let's see if we can do this together, okay? <laughs> not going to do it. I don't, I don't know why. I'm not going to do it. I'm a little weird in that when I was in college and I lived in a 12 foot camper my last year of college, um, I changed my bed sheets twice a year, you know, at the beginning of each semester. And I was fine. I was just totally fine with that. Now, some people thought I was a little weird, but it didn't bother me in the least. It was a little hard pulling the moldy sheets off the mattress. But other than that, you know, my daughter, Jill has a little weird idiosyncratic habit when she's eating. Uh, she makes these bizarre little noises like, you know, and it's like, Jill, what are you doing? You know, I'm not doing anything. You're making weird noises when you eat. You know, it's like she's talking to herself or something. And I finally said, you know, Jill, I think you're going to have to really be careful and, and let a guy know when you start dating that you make these kind of weird sounds because it might put someone off. You know, if you go out on a date, you know, um, they might think that you're trying to say something, you're choking or something. Interestingly enough, when we had dinner with our son-in-law, Matt, for the very first time, made the exact same noises. It was like a miracle. God provided a guy. And that's probably maybe that's why they got together is because they shared the same kind of weirdness or something. 
My sister-in-law Janet is weird and has her own little weird habits. She refuses to use the same towel to wipe dry the top part of her body and the bottom part of her body. She has to have a separate towel for both. It's just crazy. I got her a towel for her birthday that had a brown top and a white bottom so she could tell which end to use for the towel. You know, people are weird. And you know what? You're all weird, too. You know, and so why don't we make the most of it and live together and work together in humility, gentleness and patience rather than thinking that we've got it all together and no one else doesn't. That's really how we can live in a Christ like way, bringing our lives into balance. And the reason we should do that is the second instruction Paul gives the why. Why should we work so hard to promote the unity of the body? And look at what Paul says in terms of why. He says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What Paul is saying here is that as the body of Christ, we have everything that matters in common with one another. There is an incredible oneness and unity in the body of Christ. And we need to focus on those things and let all of the other little weirdnesses and idiosyncratic habits and stuff. And some of our opinions and some of the things that we uh, value go by the wayside in favor of focusing on all that we have in common in Jesus Christ. Look at what he says here. He says the first reason is because we're one body. Whether you believe it or not, whether you feel like it or not, whether you like it or not. Every single person in this sanctuary this morning is very literally a a, a part of the same spiritual body. We all have our significant role to play. You could think of all of us as cells in this huge universal body of Jesus Christ that all taken together makes up the body of Jesus functioning in the world today, touching people everywhere with the love and the light and the good news of Jesus Christ. We are very, in a very real sense, one body. From all these different backgrounds and places, but we are one body in Jesus Christ. Secondly, he says that we're all filled with one spirit. We're all filled with one spirit, the exact same spirit uh, of the risen Lord who indwells me, indwells you. That's what unites us and binds us all together is the living spirit of Christ who now dwells in and among his body. Secondly, Paul says that we have one hope. We've all been called to one hope. We all have the same hope based on our beliefs in Jesus Christ. And that is that we've been saved by grace through faith and that Christ is coming again to take us all to eternity. If if we live until that point in time, otherwise, when we die, we'll eventually be in paradise with Christ. We have an incredible hope together. Every single one of us. That should motivate us towards unity. We'll be spending eternity together with one another. You know, we want to start working at getting along here because it's going to be a long haul in eternity. And so we don't want to wait and start then. Another reason, the fourth reason is that we have one Lord. There's only one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lordship of Christ is referring to his headship of the church. 
Jesus Christ is the head of this church. He's head of the universal body of Jesus Christ. So whether it's a church in Uganda or a church in Costa Rica or Nicaragua or anywhere else, we all have the same head. And so we can unite around that and obey what our head has told us to obey and to do what he's told us to do. That should bring us together. A sixth reason is there's one baptism. There's just one baptism. And that is all of us enter into this body in exactly the same way. We are immersed into the body or brought into this body by the Holy Spirit, baptized into the body of Christ. Listen to what Paul says in First Corinthians uh, chapter First uh, Corinthians chapter 12. He says, for we are all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one, but of many. We were all baptized into the church by the work of the Holy Spirit. There's one spirit, one baptism. And then there's finally the reason that there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. I mean, we have got to focus on all that we have in common. The unity that we have in Jesus Christ, which can cause us then to experience the life of Christ in the body and do the things that God has called us to do. Now, listen, if we can't see the risen Christ under the power of the Holy Spirit, who indwells us all, transform us enough to live in genuine unity as the body of Christ, we have absolutely nothing to offer the world. If Jesus and God are not real enough and spiritual transformation is not real enough to transform us so that we can live in unity with one another, we have absolutely nothing to offer the world because we're just like them. The thing that sets the church apart is we come from all different places, all different backgrounds, all ethnicities, languages, customs, all of those things. And we're brought together, baptized into this body by the Holy Spirit, being transformed into this one temple, this one building, the church of Jesus Christ. And if we can't see the Holy Spirit of God transforming us enough to make that happen, then what in the world are we sharing with the world? There's nothing that we have to offer. They're looking for reality. They're looking for that, that powerful New Testament church that was united and was spreading the good news. And so we need to focus on that because otherwise we just become a caricature of the body of Christ, not the real body of Christ. You know, not long ago, uh, I read in a Dallas newspaper when I was down there, and this is an absolutely true story. This newspaper reported on a church in the Dallas area that had a conflict in the body that ended up kind of, again, getting infected and just kind of, you know, boiling out of control until it divided the church right down the middle. And the two factions were so adamant, so divided that one of the factions decided to sue the other faction for the ownership of the building. So they actually went to court in the city of Dallas, these two factions of the same church, a Baptist church. So that they could own the property. Well, ultimately, the judge threw it out and said, this does not belong in a civil court. This needs to go before a church court. You guys need to figure this out yourself. 
So it went before a church court, and finally the church court decided which group was going to get to keep the building and everything. And then after that, there was a huge story again in the Dallas uh, Morning News or Star or whatever it is, uh, where a reporter had been following along this story from its very inception and finally got to the bottom of the conflict. What originally started this conflict that ended up in splitting the church, selling the building, and he wrote about it for all of Dallas to read? It seems that during a church potluck after a church service, one of the elders of the church got a smaller piece of ham than the child sitting next to him. This is honest truth. He went back up and asked for more ham. He wanted the same size as the kid. And they said, you know, we're kind of running low on ham. And so to make sure everyone gets a piece, could you just wait until everyone gets their piece of ham? And he felt slighted. He felt offended that he wasn't going to get as much ham as a little kid next to him. And so he began a campaign of... You know, I've been treated unfairly. There's some kind of thing that they have against me, blah, 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 blah. And this gossip took hold of it. Ultimately, something that petty ended up splitting the church and really causing a mockery in the city of Dallas. See, a little bit of humility, a little bit of gentleness, a little bit of patience on that person's part could have avoided that whole thing and said, said you know, that's a... That's a really good idea. In fact, I haven't eaten my ham yet. You need it back. You know, might have been a more appropriate response than being personally offended, which indicates an incredible amount of pride and hubris. And somehow I'm special because I'm an elder in the church. No, that means that you're a servant of everyone else in the church who's willing to lay their life down for the good of the body, just like Jesus, who was the servant who laid his life down for the good of the body. Let me share two action steps this morning. And the first one is this. Is there anyone within this body with whom you have unresolved conflict? We're going to be going to the Lord's table here this morning. This is a biblical concept that under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, you should begin reflecting on whether you have unresolved conflict that could be festering with another person in this congregation or another believer, even if they're not a part of this congregation. And you need to resolve to do whatever it's going to take as far as it concerns you to resolve that conflict. Now, the reality is sometimes we want to resolve the conflict, but the other person won't participate. Paul just says, as long as far as it remains with you, pursue peace and unity. But if there is unresolved conflict, I'm here to tell you it is like bacteria in an infection it's like a cancer cell in the body it will not be contained unless it's dealt with and dealt with decisively you need to deal with that if you're serious about being the body of jesus christ secondly of humility gentleness and patience which of the three do you most need to give attention to in your own life which of those three would your life benefit from the most and would help you Engage in pursuing the unity of Wyzetta Evangelical Free Church. Maybe you write that down. Maybe it's all three. Maybe it's two of the three. It'd be good just to focus on one and say, you know, Lord, I really need to work on my humility or my patience or my you know, gentleness. So that you can actively and consciously pursue unity in the body of Jesus Christ. So that we can be the people God has called us to be and then behave the way we've been called to behave, living in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ Jesus. 
Let's pray that that would be true this morning. Father, we pray that you would be with us this morning. We recognize that we're all people who struggle. We're all weird. We all have our own beliefs and values and priorities and goals and those things. But Father, all of those pale in comparison to the unity we experience and the oneness we experience in the body of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would be able to focus less on all of our little preferences and focus more on your priorities and who we are in Christ. Focus on all of the things that unite us. Father, we pray that you would enable us to be people of humility and gentleness and patience with everyone that we deal with, considering their interests more important than our own, even as you did, so that we might be that radical community of faith that you've called us to be. In Jesus' matchless name, I ask these things. Amen.